right. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Kristen Buchanan, founder and CEO of Edify, a software company that aims to solve one of the most critical issues in engineering, remote technical onboarding. Today, we're talking with Kristen about her mission of removing friction from onboarding and other aspects of an engineering team's daily life. But before we get into that, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Oleg. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. So let's get started. Just learn a little bit about yourself. Tell me, just tell us about yourself before you get into kind of the business that you started. Tell us about Kristen. Sure. Yeah. Uh, So I always say I've got a little bit of a weird background. I actually come from museum education and art history and adult learning, but have found myself in technology for the last seven, eight years. And uh, eventually, you know, moved into the sort of spaces around technology education and found myself wanting to start a business. And so in 2014, I started my first company, And that was a consultancy. And so I ran that for about six years. And inadvertently, I ended up specializing in software engineering onboarding in that first business. I had initially opened it up as a more generalist learning and development shop, but I actually had friends early on who were software engineers and they were experiencing kind of not so great onboarding experiences. And so we would sit down to coffee and try to talk through it. And um, I gave them some tools and frameworks from the adult learning world. And that really helped them. And so I started to think, you know, I could probably just pitch this to companies. If they have a problem, then other engineers have a problem. And so I did. And people started to believe me that I could help. And and then I started to help. Uh, So that's sort of the early genesis of of this company that its progenitor, if you will, was a, a consultancy uh, and eventually I, I closed that company at the end of 2019 to bootstrap and start this company. Um, and since then, we've we've raised a seed round. We've been through Techstar Seattle. But that's, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, I guess I'm a little confused. Are they different companies? Was it a consultancy, a startup, and now it's a, a, a second startup? Or was it the consultancy and then just stopped and started the startup? Yeah, they are two separate companies. I don't run the earlier company that ran from 2014 to 2019. It was a self-funded consultancy. I would not call it a startup in the classical sort of Silicon Valley sense. It's like money in, money out, not a monopoly money business. (laughs) And with this new company, what I took from the old company was a little bit of startup capital. So I could bootstrap last summer and build our MVP. And then also the expertise and the intellectual property that I had built in that first company, I actually transferred it over so that this new company owns it. And why did you decide to, you, you, it sounds like you were doing this for, for many years. When or why did you decide to sort of make the leap and start the new company, Edify? Yeah. So for many years, I was building onboarding programs for my clients in Confluence and Jira. And I was actually trying to hack some of Jira's workflows to automate some things with onboarding because I was realizing that managers would get really busy and they would often have t- you know trouble finding the time to prepare the documentation and the checklists and all the con- kind of components for their new hire not to mention like IT setup and procurement and making sure that all the little things were taken care of for their new hire and so I was trying to make Jira work for that and I I kind of made it work for some to some extent 
But I was getting frustrated with it. And on the flip side, just personally, I was getting frustrated as a consultant. I was traveling all the time, going all over the world, which was awesome, but it was exhausting. And I wanted to have a bigger impact. And I wanted to be able to use this system that I had designed, this intellectual property in a more scalable way. And software seemed like the solution to that because I realized, you know, I'm essentially providing the same framework to engineering team after engineering team. And I've gotten it to a place where it's generalizable enough and still valuable that this can be automated. This can be software. Interesting. You know, in the industry today, we see a growing number of solo founders and and you are a solo founder yourself. Can you talk about that? And maybe um, did you consider partnering with someone or was this always your destiny? That's a great question. I think that you have to know what your kind of crazy is or (laughs) your kind of issue. I think that there's probably something wrong with everyone who starts a company and you just have to understand what that is. And it's part of what makes you a great, you know, what, what can make you make you a great entrepreneur, but it's also part of what can make you very difficult to work with. I jokingly tell people that I'm very not employable and, and I don't think I ever really have been, I've never been fired yet, but I think it probably could have happened in some of my previous jobs before my, my first business. And so one of those things, the reason I bring that up is that I know about myself that I actually work better alone and I am able to work faster and be more strategic. And I had such a clear vision and such a long, uh, I guess, set of experiences around this particular customer pain point. And I knew my customer so well that I didn't feel like I actually needed a co-founder to help me build. And inadvertently, I had I ended up sort of building the right network without realizing it because I'd been serving technology companies for so many years I had former customers, former mentors, uh, current mentors, uh, all of whom were kind of in this venture capital space and in the startup world. And so it made it pretty easy for me to get started and um, switch gears away from my my previous company. And I have a pretty high risk tolerance. And so it was comfortable for me to do that. And it was it seemed harder to try to convince someone else that they should take that kind of risk as well. And obviously you've got to do that with your early employees, but it just made more sense for me to start on my own. Yeah. And and so that risk factor is kind of what the follow-up question is going to be about. Lots of investors still view having only one founder as a, as a major risk when they're investing in companies. Is that something you experienced as well? And if you did, how did you handle that? That's a great question. Yeah. I, I don't, think that I've experienced it. I can tell you the the one time I've been asked about it actually was in my Techstars Seattle interview before I got into the program. And for an interesting data point, this most recent cohort of Techstars actually had the most number, you know, the highest number of solo founders they've ever had. It was there were four of us who were solo founders and they all happened to be women actually, which was a really interesting a phenomenon and, and data point to consider. And I think that there is a realization now that if you have the right combination of self-awareness, support systems, and if you've done a good job hiring, that you can have an investor or, or supporter can have higher faith, higher understanding, and therefore de-risk the solo founder. And that's been my own experience. I think that's the feedback that I've gotten from my own investors and from my own mentors. Awesome. Let's move on and and kind of talk about the company. You probably get this question a lot. 
maybe? Can you give us the elevator pitch for Edify? Do people actually ask you that question all the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody asks. Well, I guess people don't say, give me the elevator pitch, but, you know, people will say, well, what is it? What do you do? <laughs> and, you know, what what do we do? We build today a lightning fast way for engineering managers to build technical onboarding plans and deploy them automatically to their new hires. And what that really looks like is actually allowing an engineering manager to spend about 60 minutes building a plan that is backed by seven years of experience in science. It pulls over you know, several hundred different data points that engineers need to know and makes it really easy for an engineering manager to collect and align their documentation and their answers and actually use Slack to deliver that content in an adult learning focused way to their new hires. So for our customers, what ends up happening is that their average time to productivity for an engineer is typically six to nine months. And for our customers, we get it down to one month. So we help them save a lot of pain points on drip dipping velocity for their engineering team and slow time to productivity. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to ask about the pain points next because this is kind of a, a, a challenge you're very familiar with. So can you expand on that and, and talk about like the pain point that you address uh, with Edify? Certainly, yeah. I think that... The primary pain that our customers, you know, most of whom are engineering managers who are on the front lines of building their teams and, and growing their teams, what they experience is that documentation in an engineering team is changing all the time and is often not even written down anywhere. And that kind of information is what you need to allow a new hire to come into your team and figure things out, right? And what ends up happening when you bring somebody on in a time where you're rushing and you're already building product. And you, if you don't have an onboarding program or you don't have a checklist or a tool that will actually help them get up to speed quickly, that new hire is going to ask a lot of dumb questions to the senior engineers on the team. And that's going to pull them away from building product and eventually shipping those, uh, those features or that product. And therefore velocity goes down. And so just at the time when an engineering manager is super excited that they've added to their team, their production value goes down, right? And so that's probably the first pain point that we deal with. And inherent in that is obviously how quickly can you get a new hire up to speed? That's time to productivity. And unfortunately, most organizations don't have a really solid way of measuring that. And most organizations still struggle with the definition of what engineering productivity really is. Um, and so we try to help organizations articulate that by looking at what are some indicators, how do we know what what meet what it means to sort of go to walk, go to run, go to actually being able to doing it on your own. And so you worked on this problem a long time. Can you talk about maybe the insights you gained on how to kind of address uh, that pain point with onboarding that you're so familiar with? Yeah, I think. Probably the reason that I have a different perspective that, that I haven't seen in the industry before is because I actually come from an industry really, really far away from software development, right? Um, in the museum world, you're looking at how do I create learning experiences for people who are trying to actually come and enjoy something and they're not forced to be in this environment and it's not a classroom and it's it should be very experiential, very tactile. Um, and I started to see all of these parallels between those kinds of environments and how engineers needed to learn. A lot of the times engineers want to get into something, they want to try it, they want to break it, and that's how they learn. 
And obviously this is, you know, a big sweeping generalization, but this is my experience. And when I started to kind of unpack what are the components of adult learning science and adult learning theory that could be relevant to helping solve this customer pain point of getting engineers up to speed faster and, and causing their, you know, not causing their velocity to dip, I realized that no one was really applying adult learning science to this problem. And, and so we live with this status quo of basically a 200 point checklist in some cases where 50% of the documentation is out of date in two months, right? And so by bringing that insight from a, a world that's really, you know, not very connected to software engineering at all and applying that to this business problem and having real empathy for the engineers and for their managers and for their leaders uh, in these situations, I think we were able to come up with something really novel. Can you talk about how you how you arrive at that solution, or maybe what the solution is when the um, when the problem is different? I guess what I'm trying to say is like with uh, adult learning, what were you calling it? ALS, ALS something? Uh, adult learning science. Yeah, there's science and there's theory. Yeah, with uh, adult learning sciences applied to you know museum study or mm-hmm. his, that stuff doesn't change, right? But like you're saying with uh, technical documentation and engineering org docs, like that stuff needs to be updated constantly. So how are those problems different and why would the solution Mm. kind of apply to both? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective on the issue. I think you're right. When you're looking at museums, sometimes things are not changing because, you know, they're in glass vitrines and they're, they're sort of specimens that don't change. And actually there's a, there's a whole lot more change happening in museums than people often realize because there's new interpretation of history or there's new interpretation of the science um, or there's new, you know, a new piece of art from an artist is discovered uh, that adds, you know, complexity to their body of work. All these really interesting things about um, what we put into museums are dynamic, but in the, in the world of engineering and, and software development, things are very dynamic in a way that they aren't in most other environments. But what I think we can take from the museum and and learning science kind of connections to this are things that tell us about how adults like to learn and how they learn best. And so that's where we can pull from the science that says adults learn best when they actually choose to be learning, when they are actually seeking out uh, a way to solve an outcome. So if you think about you know, the last time you tried to learn something, you probably didn't say like, okay, what's my learning plan going to be? And how am I going to figure this out? Let's say like you wanted to unclog your toilet (laughs) as an example, you're just going to go to YouTube and look it up. Right. And because that's, you know, important to you and, and, you know, it's a real outcome that you're trying to to solve, you have motivation to solve it um, and to learn how to do it. And you probably won't have to watch that YouTube video more than a couple times to really put that in your head and, and put it into um, more than just working memory, but long-term memory. And the same is true with engineers and, and all adults is that um, when there's an outcome that they're looking for, they will seek out ways to get to that outcome. And the middle ground of that is that we need scaffolding. This is another adult learning concept. We need scaffolding that allows people to go from one level to the next level to the next level. And the thing about museum education and and any sort of more formalized education is that scaffolding is a really natural topic and we know how to use it in 
uh, in those environments, but in corporate worlds and startups and in engineering teams, nobody's taught about adult learning. Nobody's taught about the concept of scaffolding. And so you get the result is, is you get these checklists or collections of links or lists of documentation that have no context. They have no way of organizing uh, from relevance to the new hire. And so a new hire comes in is, is not really sure how to solve this problem. They know what outcome they're trying to get, but they don't know how to solve the problem. They don't know what they should search in YouTube, right? And that's the value of really bringing those concepts from adult learning science into this industry. Got it. Yeah, lots of really interesting concepts right there. I understand that you spent you know several years, uh, like we already mentioned, designing onboarding programs for various companies before you launched this kind of current version uh, or incarnation of Edify. Was it hard to transition from a service uh, to a product-based business? Oh, that's a good question. There's probably many layers to that. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it was not hard in a logistics sense because I ran the previous business. It was all my property. I could just decide I don't want to do this one day and open up a new company, right? So that's that was a pretty easy decision. I was very lucky to be able to go on a sabbatical in the late summer of 2019. And I really got a chance to think about how I want to evolve as a person and how I wanted to evolve as a founder. And I knew that I wanted a new challenge. I was burnt out of consulting. Um, it was great money, but it, it just wasn't doing what I wanted it to do anymore. And I felt like I could have a bigger impact as we talked about earlier. And so that logistic kind of equation wasn't hard to solve. What was challenging was probably something that I couldn't have even articulated at the beginning. And I can see it more now, you know, 12 plus months in, which is that it's very different from, you know, being a startup founder and CEO is so different than being a, a small business owner, right? Or a consultancy founder. And even in that business, I had employees and I had, you know, contractors and, um, business systems and various things that can be similar here, but there's something completely different about running this type of startup. And by this type of startup, I mean, this is a venture capital funded startup. We have market pressures. We have dynamics that don't exist in a bootstrapped company and don't exist in a sort of a self-managed uh, small business. And so there's been so much learning, sometimes hard, <laughs> that I've had to do as a founder and as a CEO. And, and I think that's been, I wouldn't say hard as in impossible to, to overcome or upsetting or any of that, but it's, it's been like deep learning for me. Um, it really every day. And what I realized, my coach was telling me this a couple of weeks ago, she said, you know, you have to realize that what's happening to your brain every day is what happens to, you know, maybe a, a normal person's work brain in a week. Right. And so, so much is getting crammed in every single day and decision, decisions are changing, facts are changing, um, you're learning new things every minute of every day. And that's just not the pace of work in my previous company. And so I have adored it. I've loved this opportunity, but it is hard. It's, it's more exhausting. I was actually talking to one of my uh, engineers the other day and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm actually a lot more hungry and a lot more tired. And that's because you're actually burning more calories thinking and working on this type of business, as silly as that sounds. No, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's a fact, right? Um, thinking takes energy. And uh, anyway, 
so yeah, it, you're, you're learning a ton of new stuff. That's got to be uh, exhausting. Let's let's talk more about onboarding. You've already mentioned scaffolding, which I think might be the answer here. But what is the secret behind great engineering onboarding? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? So I think that the secret is actually the way that you present information and how you expect new hires to to operationalize that information. And so this is kind of core to how we have built our product at Edify that we believe that information should be presented contextually. And this is supported by adult learning science. It's supported by the last you know seven years of doing this with other companies in my previous business. And um, what I see most companies struggle with is figuring out how do I take the time to arrange all of the core pieces of information. And just to, to add a little visual to this, when I was a consultant, I used to go and work with these engineering teams and I would get all the engineering team uh, managers in a room and I would usually put pizza or candy or something out on the table and because it'd be like a 90 minute session. And I would give each of them a pile of post-it notes and a marker and on the walls, back back when you can go in people's offices, the walls would have four big poster boards. And each of the poster boards were labeled. And there were four labels. There was product, process, professional expectations, and tech and tooling. And basically, we would go in little short sprints. So for 20 minutes, I would say, all of the managers, write down everything you can think of that you think an engineer in your team needs to know about product. And then we would repeat it for the other three, right? And by the end of it, there could be 80 to 150 post-it notes on each document, on, on each poster. That's a lot of post-it notes. So I would actually take those posters back to my office. I would dedupe them. And then I would find out, you know, what's, what do we have in terms of documentation that actually meets this requirement? So it would be things like, you know, just throwing some out like dev environment setup, linting, security protocol, how we, uh, you know, what our cloud providers are and how we deal with them. Um, how do we assess cloud costs? How do we deal with failure? How do we communicate? What's our engineering philosophy? All kinds of different points. And I kept doing this year over year, and eventually I came up with hundreds of these unique touch points. Now, can you imagine having to, as an engineering leader, spend your time, number one, finding out all that information, number two, organizing it, number three, actually making sure that you have enough documentation and the right documentation that's not out of date, and then figuring out how do you feed this to your new hire? How do you deliver this without having to sit with them in a classroom for eight hours a day for four, four weeks, right? That seems impossible, but it's not impossible, especially when you use, uh, you know, a technology to help you uh, find those things out and, and operationalize them. So that's kind of the way that we've thought about it at Edify. Mm -hmm. And why are intangibles like uh, equity, work culture, and inclusivity uh, particularly important, but maybe uh, overlooked? Yeah, the, these are, I think, being less overlooked lately, but because I am seeing a lot of change in engineering teams. But I think that they're really important because they actually affect how, high, how, how highly a team can perform, I would say. And when a team is experiencing things like knowledge hoarding, where uh, a team member or more one or more team members is actually 
refusing to share information. Oftentimes that will look like they're not writing it down or they avoid talking about it with people when they're experiencing that or when they're experiencing uh, a lot of group think or people are afraid to challenge one another. Those are symptomatic of having a team that is fear-based, a team that is not inclusive, a team that is often not diverse. And that's why we want to invest in the reverse of those things, right? We want to invest in having a psychologically safe team where people can try things, where they can sometimes fail on the things that we have tolerance for failure on, um, where they feel comfortable sharing their knowledge. And those things happen, uh, those, those bad things that tend to happen when we have not prioritized team health. And so I think that onboarding is actually one of the first places that you have an opportunity to emphasize team health and to teach these skills and to show what we value to a new team member, because they're going to get the picture pretty quickly about how you work. And if you want them to understand how you work and that you have a value of these these sorts of things like equity and inclusivity and clear communication, clear expectations, then they will do that with their teammates. And so you won't have to deal with the, the sort of compounding problems potentially months or years down the road when that team is not healthy and that team is not a high performing organization. Uh, you mentioned that um, this is kind of a follow up. You mentioned that onboarding is, is uh, one way to dress these things. Do you have um, any other remedies? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anybody else experienced this. Maybe, maybe my family was weird, but when I was a little kid, my mom would put any kind of medicine that I didn't want to take in applesauce. Now, consequently, I don't really like applesauce anymore, but it was a way for, for her to get us to take our, whatever we needed to take. Right. And I use that phrase a lot in this work. I, I often say like, how can we medicine in the applesauce this? Because Behavior change and driving behavior change through a technology product is extremely challenging. It's, it's very hard and, in fact, is often not successful. And so you'll see a lot of tech products out in the world that have, they have great ideas. They have sometimes good design, sometimes good science, but they force people to change their ways of working, right? And I think when you force people to change their ways of working too drastically or too quickly, you will get pushback on, on actually making that, that adjustment or that switch, say to, from, from being a, let's say team that has a lot of knowledge hoarding issues going on to a team that is open and, and collaborative. Right. And so when we think about product design at Edify, we often are asking ourselves, what is our teams, our customers daily behavior? How do they normally work? And how can we work within the confines and actually use that as a design, you know, set of design principles to help us design a product that works in their work style and also allows them to build new skills or build patterns of communication that they might not have otherwise built. And so we, we kind of come to our solutions from this systems oriented way. And we want to understand what's the, the root problem here so that we can design solutions in their way of working. And so to make that more literal, you know, most engineers have a monitor open all day with Slack on it, right? So they're using Slack or other tools like Microsoft Teams all day, every day, 
for so many different things. They're using it to query their team and find something. They're using it to log Jira tickets. They're using it to check status on things. They're using it to share code snippets. Why not use that to onboard? Why not use that to um, push ideas or uh, changes or you know, re renegotiate conversations in Slack? You could actually be using tools and behaviors and daily workflows that help people uh, learn new things, medicine in the applesauce, without having to go to, say, a management boot camp or a course on how to do this, you know, clear communication or something like that. You can actually use your product design to change those things. Yeah, kind of a meet them where they're at uh, sort of philosophy. I, I, I'm sorry to hear about, uh, you know, your relationship with applesauce. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> I love the metaphor. <laughs> can you, uh, so next, can you talk about developer onboarding and, and how it's like an escape room and maybe the right way to design design that escape room? Yeah, this is interesting. This is one of the more recent blog posts that we published at Edify. And, you know, I think the way that we look at this is that onboarding is actually not linear. And there are a lot of different paths that you could potentially take, um, a lot of different boxes that can be opened and ways that people can be successful. And we even see this in our own product and different behavior of different users in our product that, you know, have helped us in product design that we'll see that, you know, senior engineers, for example, want more choice. They want more opportunity to move into things in a faster pace than say a junior engineer or an engineer who just came out of code school. And so you have opportunities to design sort of, I, I don't like the term gamify and, and, and edify as a product, there's no real true gamification or you know rewards or anything like that, but to design, help somebody design their own opportunities to move through learning at the right pace for them while they're still meeting the goals and the outcomes, you know, solving that escape room puzzle, if you will. Interesting. Let's move on to the value proposition uh, over there at Edify. So looking under the hood, can you describe the essence uh, of your innovation? I know that, uh, for example, you've kind of joined science with AI with this uh, Eddie bot. So can you talk about that? Absolutely. I think, like I said earlier, the, the real novelty in in our solution is that there isn't a product on the market that has tried to solve this particular problem in this way. And there's, there's a ton of different HR tools out there to that are really interesting, and actually some of them are really good, that allow people to build workflows, and, but they're empty. You have to actually look at an open white page and figure out what goes in there. And because we have really studied engineers and supported them for so long, I've been able to figure out, okay, does the workflow need to be empty? And the answer is no. We can actually support our teams, our customers, faster and better by giving them pre-filled opportunities, basically, to build their onboarding plan. And, and that's actually how people experience building their onboarding plan is that 90% of it is pretty self-serve and, and you know you just drop in links to documentation. You don't have to write custom answers. You don't have to think too hard about this because they are all of the core things that any good engineering manager would want their new hire to learn. And that that's in stark contrast to putting in place, you know, here's a, a blank, blank page where you have to figure out what is important. I have to spend a lot of cycles thinking about what's important, why is it important, what order does it go in? And we've already done that hard work for you in a really sort of specific and novel way that 
I don't think is out there today, at least that I'm seeing. And from a, a technology standpoint, the way in which we've built our tool is, I think it's it's one of the most exciting bots I've seen out in the world because our paradigm is really different. A lot of people are on the surface of it, uncomfortable with bots. I think there's a lot of, especially in engineering, people are getting much more comfortable with using a bot to get work done. But the paradigm for most bots is that the user always initiates contact with the bot. And that's actually the opposite paradigm that we, from what we have at Edify, which is that Eddie should be intelligent enough to initiate contact with you and provide you with something that's useful. And so uh, we are building really interesting tools in our, our bot that don't exist out on the market in other bots today. How does your offering create value for uh, your customers? So I think the first thing, this is was kind of a surprising thing. We, we had not put this into our value proposition early on, but we actually got a, a lot of feedback from our early customers that the act of actually building their onboarding plan using Edify was valuable in and of itself, not even yet deploying it to their new hire, but just building their plan because it showed them, oh, wow, I have a lot of outdated documentation or I have none on this really important topic and I need to invest here or I need to get my team to invest here because this is the core stuff that's important. Maybe we can drop some of the other stuff that um, isn't as important for onboarding. And so they got some early value from that, which is really cool for us to, to understand about our customers. I would say, though, that the, the core value is really allowing that new hire to get up to speed quickly, right? It's really hard for an engineer to feel like they're sitting and spinning their wheels and they either don't have anything to work on because everybody else is busy and nobody has time to help them figure out what to work on and the Jira board is too confusing and they don't know what to pick up or to feel like they're spinning their wheels because they don't understand the material and there was no scaffolding to help them get into it. You know, a lot of companies have a lot of skeletons in their closet, in their code bases. And, you know, I, I love the trend that I'm seeing uh, in the past five years where people really are starting to take tech debt seriously and starting to pull things out into, you know, co different components, different code bases so that they can be interoperable together. But that's not how everything is all the time. And so it can be really hard and intimidating as a, you know, first week, second week new hire to figure out where do I start? Where do I get in? And Eddie allows you to know that. It allows you to walk through a really context-driven path and it gives you the opportunity to ask for help. So one of my favorite features in Eddie actually allows, when, it, when Eddie realizes that a new hire is stuck, it will ask them if they'd like to get some help. And if they say yes, Eddie can go in a private message to that new hire's buddy, bring the context of the task that the new hire was getting stuck on and actually ask the buddy, you know, hey, can you help so-and-so with this? Yes or no. If yes, then Eddie will actually facilitate that direct message between the two people. So it really decreases the social stress and the social anxiety of somebody actually figuring out who do I go to to ask for help on this thing. And let's talk about your competition. How do you differentiate yourself? Our true competition today is, is what I call status quo. And that's really two things. It's the Google Doc checklist and the Confluence Doc checklist. And so teams, you know, every team is probably, you know, every engineering team is probably either using an Atlassian product or has used an Atlassian product. And they're often trying to hack a 
you know, Confluence page, a Trello board, something like that, or a Google Doc in a way that allows them to get this checklist, right? And there's just a lot of sort of version control problems with that. There's a lot of shareability and, and you can't pull any data out of it. Um, there's just a, a lot of utility issues with it. And in terms of, you know, products that are doing similar things, there are, there are a lot of interesting products that are looking at productivity of engineers. I think about Jellyfish or Pinpoint, Git Prime, which got acquired a couple of years ago by Pluralsight. Like those sorts of companies are interesting. I am often skeptical of whether or not you can or should measure developer productivity in lines of code. And so that's always my cautionary note on some of the, the ways that those companies are operating. But I, I think that when you look out at the, the ecosystem, I don't see anything that's doing exactly what we want to do. And in fact, where we want to go with our business is to be the operating system of high-performing engineering teams and really sit between their HR tooling stack and their SDLC, their software development lifecycle, so that they can have every insight that they already have today about themselves, but but that's not getting pulled out. So insights about who they should really hire for which competencies and how they should save information for when a new hire is, or when, a, when an engineer is offboarding, um, or does this new hire need a different challenge? Um, all of that stuff has to be really done manually today. Um, even though there's a ton of data, engineers can't access it. So that's where we want to be adding value in the long term. Yeah. So thank you. That's where you want to, uh, the goal kind of long-term. Can you talk about maybe some of the key milestones that you've achieved to date to this point along your journey? Yeah. So the the first thing was that when we, when I got really serious about this at the end of 2019 and uh, early 2020, I decided to run a Google style design sprint back in February of 2020. And uh, it was sort of the last thing that we did in person. Um, and at the time, the Edify really consisted of me and our now director of product, Jamie Ravenberg, who was really just sort of helping out at the time. And we actually got engineers and ICs and engineering managers and CTOs and VPs of engineering in a room on a Monday and asked them all kinds of questions. We just did tons and tons of research. And throughout that week, you end up uh, prototyping and pitching your early version of your product, right? And that's that's what we did before we even built anything. We had prototyped it in uh, Bot Society and Figma, and you know didn't actually build anything to see if we could sell it in the first place. And so that worked, and that really gave us what we felt like was permission to from customers to really start working in code. Um, so we built a low code solution really quickly. Then we built a coded solution really quickly. We Spent about four months doing that in the summer of last year. We launched it in beta in August of 2020 and put customers on it early on. Then we were able to raise our $2 million seed round that was led by Flying Fish. It has Atlassian Ventures and Portland Seed Fund. And um, actually one of your guests, Luke Knies, is one of our mentors and angel investors as well. And that then led us to the milestone of Techstars. And so that was a huge experience for us and so many levels and really launched our thinking uh, about go-to-market strategy a little bit differently and, and just gave us so much value. 
graduating from that and then starting to build our own bot framework, which is where we are right now. So we are working on leaving third-party tools because they just don't offer us enough flexibility for what our customers need. And so we're answering that need uh, with some original work. What's the most important North Star metric that helps you track progress today? Yeah, it, for us, it is about how new hires are doing in their onboarding plan. There's a, obviously a lot of different metrics that we track in the product, and that teaches us a lot about what optimization needs to happen or enhancements. But um, chiefly, it's the question of does the product do what it needs to do for our, our customers, right? At the end of the day, that's who we care about. We actually don't care about how many customers can we get on the product. It's about how many engineers can have a better onboarding experience by using Edify. Right, kind of relating back to that pain point from the from the very beginning. So let's move on and talk about customers and money. How do you reach your customers today? Yeah, we reach our customers in a variety of ways. We have a lot of word of mouth that happens. You know, happy customers tell other customers, and that's that's one strategy. And we also find that LinkedIn and, and reaching out to people on LinkedIn, we often are reaching out to ask them to critique our product, and um, that's something that's been really important to us for. Uh, the whole time that I've been running Edify is constant customer discovery, constant avoidance of sort of happy ears, uh, always looking for somebody to tear down the product. That may sound really negative, but it's actually helps us keep things from getting personal and helps us never be uh, too proud of our product. It helps us always learn that Ultimately, what matters is our customer and whether or not they're getting the outcome that they want, not some kind of output, but the outcome that they want. And if we're not delivering that, then it's it's not going to work. Right. And so that outreach on LinkedIn has been huge for us. Um, and people, as soon as we started to, we, we launched out of just having kind of a, you had to actually come in and have a demo. But as soon as we launched self-serve on the website, you could just buy it off the website. We've been uh, seeing a huge uptick in just traffic from our blog posts and things like that. Hmm. And how do you guys make money? We make money from sort of a SaaS model. So um, we're always testing pricing right now. We've only been charging for the product for the past about three and a half months now. And so we're still learning a lot, but there's a monthly SaaS fee that companies pay to, to be on the product. All right. Well, let's kind of move to close. Can you talk about some of the biggest challenges that you might still need to address uh, as a company? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I talked about the sort of exciting opportunity of building our own bot framework, and that is both an exciting opportunity and a huge challenge. You know, it requires different specialization. We're doing a little bit of hiring for that work, work right now. It requires um, some really deep intelligence and thought about the architecture of what we really want. So we kind of have to pre-solve or think about some of the future components that we may need, or we have to leave the door open to being able to bolt things on in the future. And so that is a really big technical challenge, but we, we've we heard from our customers, we know what's right for them. And so that's what we're pursuing. But I would say that that's probably the, the biggest challenge right now. And the secondary challenge is always making sure that we we have the right team members that we're able to recruit the best and the brightest from everywhere. We're a remote-centric company and always have been and will continue to be that way. And we want to be able to access talent from everywhere. And that can be challenging as an early stage company. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, last question here, uh, Kristen. You know, it, it sounds like you get really good coaching. It sounds like this thing is going really well. And, and just talking to you, you sound like you're moving at light speed. So do you have any advice for first-time solo founders that might be getting into this game, you know, just to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I always ask people, have you sold it yet? <laughs> and um, I don't mean to be flip about it, but I, I was actually hearing from a another uh, I guess would would be or you know a, a person who wanted to be a founder and they had an idea, and they'd actually spend a bunch of money already developing uh, a solution. And I asked them, you know, have you ever done any customer discovery interviews? Did you ever prototype it? Did you ever you know put something together that was a little duct tapey? But did you actually ask somebody if they would pay for it? And he said no. And I was like, how much? time and effort have you put into building this solution that you're building right now? And he's like, oh, about six months and $50,000, which in the grand scheme is not, you know, like the worst amount of money to lose on something. But I I really challenged him and said, you know, like, I, I think your idea is really interesting, but I'm also not your customer. So I don't know if anybody's going to buy this. You need to go ask. You need to go find it out. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to do is there a lot of people have the natural inclination to keep something secret until it's perfect and ready. And the hard truth of doing this work is it will never be perfect and it will never be ready. It is always in a state of growth and change and flux. And it's always hideous until it's not. Right. And then once you think it's not hideous, you're going to find new things that are hideous about it. And that's just your job as the founder is to constantly be pushing, constantly being critical of it so that you can grow, so you can serve your customer better. Fantastic. Kristen, before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and maybe learn more about Edify? Absolutely. Well, I always love hearing from people. So my email is Kristen at getedify.co. You can find me on Twitter at Kristen Maeve. Um, and you can obviously find us on our website at getedify.co. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to end the show there. If you liked it, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, send your feedback to info at angelnears.com. Thanks, Kristen, for joining the show today. Uh, I really appreciate appreciate you sharing your story uh, with our listeners. I think you have a great approach when it comes to problem solving. So you're a great guest. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Oleg.